2: Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own discord channel now where there's chat and things on it there's ko-fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like there's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are and of course just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year so thank you once again
3: i'm going to stop waffling here's the show Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You've got Zach and Boney with you today. I'll be honest, we had a bit of a bun fight in the History Hack office. Not that we have an actual office, but the virtual office over who was going to get the hosting duties for this one, because Boney and I basically went full student tantrum and went, but I want to record with this guest, and Alex had to be the adult in the room, and turn around and go all right then you two can have it and i'll duck out of this one bony who have we got with us today and why are we looking forward to this so much well it needs to be said we're going to pay for that and it, it, it's
2: going to come back to buy us in the house because ladies and gentlemen we have the wonderful knight hark Rider back with us and we are going to talk about women's social housing so normally we sort of give everybody's you know accoutrement for their history studies on this but to be fair that will take up the whole hour because nina has all of them and if you want to know more go back and listen to her previous couple episodes because they are fantastic and you will hear why zach and i fought tooth and nail blood may have been drawn to be able to spend the afternoon with nina nina how are you
0: i'm very well thank you blushing bit from all the compliments but yes thank you so much they're all well deserved Oh, thank you. Delighted to be back. Doing these are so much fun. I always enjoy them. Um, you know, and I hope everyone who who does listen to the amazing and wonderful History Hack podcasts enjoy these particular ones. Because, of course, you know, as, as, as a nerd on this subject, I'm incredibly excited all the time to be able to talk about it. And hopefully those of you who choose to listen enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing them. Well, you're
3: in good company in terms of the nerd sphere. I don't know if Alex uh, shamed this into you, I and mean, we might have to edit this out actually, but you have demonstrated your, your nerdiness because you have a certain somebody peering majestically over your shoulder. Who am I, I referring to?
0: I do indeed. I am the person thus far, although there could be others of you out there who have the same sort of minor history obsession with the redutable Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And over here on this side of the pond, we have something ridiculous called fatheads. They're basically life-size stand-up cardboard figures, and they tend to be, most people order them of sports figures, you know. So you might have a life-size head of your favorite footy player, but if you're me, you have Isambard Kingdom Brunel with the fabulous cigar and his amazing top hat, which always appears to be almost as big as he is. So yes, he's, uh, he hangs out in my study with me and inspires me to, uh, to greater glory on various historical projects.
2: We're we're totally with you there. We we visited Great Britain over the summer. We went down to Bristol. Mm. And it was it was lovely. It was really, really cool. And there's I, I'm pretty sure that cutout appears multiple times on the tour of the ship. It probably does. So yes. So we're going to be talking about women's social housing today, which carries on quite nicely from your last visit with us. So let's well, let's let's get started here. So the social changes behind our all of this. How are women's lives changing by the mid 19th century? And what are some of the causes that sort of generate and facilitate these changes?
0: Right. Big questions. I'm going to try to answer them succinctly because we could have an entire, we could have an entire history hack podcast about this, the different economic and social changes that are occurring. So suffice to say, we, we, we all know a bit about the industrial revolution And one of the big impacts, of course, is the movement of labor from an agrarian way of living to working in various factories and trades. And work moves from individual homes to Uh, larger urban conurbations, most notably London, because it is the biggest and the most populous, et cetera. But of course, Manchester, a lot of these things occur early on because of the development of various uh, mechanisms to make spinning and manufacture of cloth no longer something that you do on a loom in your own sort of house, but it, it occurs in a factory, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so several things come into play. The first thing is, you know, the fundamental thing that we all wrestle with, which is how do I put food on my table? And once you are being paid for specific labor in money, as opposed to in kind, you can't glean on fields, you're not getting a share of the crop, you don't have your own garden, etc. You're not surviving on the largesse of the landowner. Everything changes because you have to come up with the money not only for your own food and clothing and so on, but you also have to figure out how to keep a roof over your head. And anytime you talk about a city where land is in demand, you begin to get a situation where the cost of actually keeping a roof over your head becomes incredibly challenging. So that's one factor is move to a city, move to an area where land is in demand, where housing is in demand. Right away, your situation is going to be more precarious. What happens, of course, is it was typical when England was an agrarian nation for everybody to work in the fields and work on whatever crop or whatever work that you were doing for the landholder. This is true when you move to when you move into a situation where you're going to generate money for your, your labor in whatever trade or factory. So that means that not just the men of the household work, but the women too, because otherwise there's not enough money to pay for the family to survive. One of the things about being a woman during this era is that, that we all have to remember is that you were seen as a lesser human being. Um, you were seen as innately evil, innately uh, less intelligent, physically, less strong. So there's a there's a strange dichotomy going on whereby you are a lesser person, therefore you can be paid less. You do not have the right to vote. you do not have the right to be in control of your own money or your own life. And yet you're somehow allowed to work in a factory, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week. So let's just remember that a lot of this is <laughs> a lot of this is driven by the fact that England is now a highly industrialized, the most industrialized nation in the world. And quite frankly, it suits, and sorry guys, but I've got to say it, it suits the white guys who are in charge of everything to have it work this way because it's to their benefit. As owners of profit-making enterprises, they are interested in maximizing their profit. Uh, they're not necessarily interested in anything but that. So women are typically paid half of what men are paid, even if they are doing a similar job. And in particular what, what the textile manufacturers discover, and of course that's the first big engine that is driving the English economy in the really starting in the late 18th, but by the time you get to the mid 19th century, yeah, absolutely, is the fact that you can pay women half. And so if you look at who's working in many of these factories, as long as it, and and even sometimes if it does, require brute strength, you're going to hire women because they're cheaper. And it's just understood that that's how you do it and women don't have power in the situation so they can't change that. So one of the things that happens as a result of this new dynamic is that people, in addition to all the men in the household working, is they send their daughters to work in factories. Now, let's remember again that women are seen as inherently sinful and evil. And so all manner of things of working in a factory where you have men and women, boys and girls together, make people nervous. If your daughter's working in a factory, who's looking after her? Who's supervising her? Who is, is making sure she's behaving herself and not giving into her inherently sinful, Eve-like nature? So there's that. Sometimes, of course, if you're a young woman, there isn't work right where you live. And so because you can get a job in a factory and you can make money, that's what you do. So you leave home and you go to a place where you can get hired and you can make money to support your family. And this, of course, is a huge disruption. In England, people are used to having their sons go off and leave the family nest and work and make their own way. This is absolutely not something that women are supposed to be doing. And so there's a big disruption because you have the dynamic tension between we've got to feed the family and, oh, my God, Madeline is not living under our roof. Who's taking care of her? So this essentially is what causes the need for some form of housing, whereby you as a woman, uh, a young woman or even a woman of marriageable age, are somehow going to be supervised, protected, kept on the straight and narrow. And this is, this is due to beliefs about women, but it's also due to the, the fundamental idea that women's role is ultimately to be a wife and a mother. And if she steps outside of this role, if she is no longer doing this, not only um, will there not be you know, the basics, which are, we're not going to have any workers because we're not going to have families, because this is dependent on women becoming mothers and, you know, and bringing into the world multiple children. But it's also seen as a disruption to society because women are not going to be residing in their sort of God-given, God-mandated place, which is subservient to men. So uh, there's a huge complex of different issues and uh, concerns that arise as a result of women who are not married being technically on their own, working somewhere and then not returning to the, the Kind of the supervision of their their father or an older brother or an uncle or something like that
3: you've tapped into something that which I really wanted to ask about, which is the public and private spheres yes ethos yes. in all of this, because yes. if you've got women going out to work, then okay, perhaps it's not your sort of traditional public sphere of oh well, men are you know endowed with bigger brains and therefore have a better understanding of politics, and women can't possibly cope with political thoughts because their minds would just melt or something. Um, So, you know, women going out into the workplace isn't quite that kind of undermining of the the public-private dichotomy, but it is nonetheless an, an undermining of sorts because there's this perception of man as breadwinner. So if you've got woman as breadwinner, there are all kinds of issues here. Partly, why isn't man providing enough so that woman needs to go out to work? But equally, with woman going out to work, that shows that she can do a job just as well as man. And if she's then not able to support her own life off the back of that, then that creates all kinds of problems in terms of, well, why isn't she able to? Do you know know what I'm getting at here? So how does that concept kind of get woven in? Because obviously it's a load of bullshit, but people are invested in this bullshit notion. So how do they deal with that?
0: Absolutely. And and the answer is that they, it is amazing that if you have a, and this won't come as a surprise to, to, to almost anyone who studies or thinks about history, if there is a challenge to the prevailing perception, the tendency is to reject it. And you've got loads of Evidence, You know, you've got the numbers of women who are working, the numbers of young girls who are working, the numbers of, you know, and the issue of children working is a whole other one, which, which would need a completely different session to discuss. But yes, what's actually happening and what the decision making portion of the population is believing in and counting on are really very different and very much at odds. And I think some of what happens with the development of housing for these young women is an attempt to stick with the prevailing beliefs that men and women have God-given roles, there is a hierarchy, it's God who chose it, and we disrupt it at our peril. With the actual economic engine, whereby the same people who are saying, you know, this is woman's God-given role are also the people who are profiting from the fact that they have women working. So there is a, you know, to say that this is hypocritical, well, we could, you know, we could, we could dive into that, you know, and of course, even nowadays, we are still wrestling with these same ideas about what is woman's role. What should she be doing? What's the most important thing that she does? You know, and I mean, in my own life, I've been fighting with this one for, you know for for decades. What does it mean to be uh, to be an adult woman in a world? And, you know, mind you, I lucked out. I'm pretty privileged in that. I went to university. I was able to to go to graduate school to get a doctoral degree and so on. But what does it mean when you as a person are still valued very much uh, less if you are not a wife and a mother, even in this day and age? So imagine, so if you you jump back, you know, nearly 200 years, 150, 140 years ago, this is so much stronger. And so what's fascinating is you do, you begin to get young women and girls who are sort of saying, I've got money and Yes, some of it's going to go home to my family, but I actually have money myself now and I can buy things. And, you know, look at me, I'm doing this job and I'm taking care of myself. And it makes people extremely uncomfortable. It makes men incredibly uncomfortable. What's interesting too is, is it makes um, women uncomfortable in particular middle class and upper middle class women, because it starts to threaten the semi-privileged position that they believe they have because they are not working in a factory so in ex- sort of in exchange for being subservient to their husband's brothers fathers etc they have allowed themselves to believe that they are somehow purer beings and better beings morally and so this kind of is an exchange for allowing themselves to be sub- subservient. So if you've got a bunch of young women who are, and there are some wonderful, wonderful paintings of this and and early photographs of when all the young women leave the factory at the end of the shift, they're all together. And yeah, they're a little rowdy. They've, they've worked hard. They want to let off some steam. They are dressed in working women's clothes. And suddenly you've got this big group of women in a crowd, not at home. And hang on, this is making us all nervous. This is also, mind you, after the Chartist riots and the gigantic, you know, series of revolutions in Europe in 1848. And so there's a lot of, uh, the undercurrent of this is is also too, fear of an uprising on the part of the working classes. And it, it somehow gets magnified even more if we're talking about women. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, my, that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the world is ending. And, you know, what will God do? Because we've, you know, we've upended his, his natural order. So, the
3: bit. They might start asking for the vote.
0: Imagine What will we do that. then? Yes, I know. What will we do? I, I'm going to force, force us to think about what do you do with these young women in terms of putting a roof over their head? Because that, of course, is the, the, you know, it's, let's face it, it's a fundamental need. We all, we, each of us deal with it every single day. Where can I live? Where can I be safe? Where can I sleep? Where's my home? We all need that. And so lodging houses, remember, are seen as seedy, terrifying, uncontrolled nests of thieves and and prostitutes and so on and so forth. And of course the giant fear is that these young women because they're unsupervised and they're free will give in to their own evil nature and they're all gonna become prostitutes and they're going to produce illegitimate babies and you know, add to the parish rates, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always an undercurrent. So what you finally start to have is the, the upper middle sorts who are concerned in general about the state of the working classes. And, you know, we talked about this last time, which is there is there are, there are multiple pieces to this. One is I am genuinely concerned because we've had investigations into the mines and into various, you know, in the wake of the cholera epidemic into the way that, that the, the, the poorer sorts are living and so on. And there is genuine concern. How can we as, and in general, it's men, how can we as Englishmen treat our fellow human beings this way? We must do something. And remember there's a there's a big Christian revival also in the latter part of the of the 18th century. And so they begin to feel as Christians, we cannot do this. We must do something to help people. And so when you start having young women, you have that. And you also have concerns for, you know, because certainly you're vulnerable if you're if if you're a young woman also. So there is concern about the well-being, unscrupulous masters, unscrupulous men working in the factory, all of those things. So this this admixture along with oh, dear Lord, what if all these young women become prostitutes, creates a situation where there is recognition that because women get paid less and because of their vulnerability, that housing is particularly challenging for them to find. And so you begin to get that in England, the concern for working women who are not married and therefore not living in a family-based household starts as an offshoot, actually, of the social housing movement. So as early as the 1840s, you get the, uh, and we talked about these folks last time, the Society for Improving uh, the Lives of the Laboring Classes. <laughs> I love these long names. And when they consider I think
2: they're my, my new favorite oh, organization I, uh, ever. Oh.
0: Ever, yes. And of course, anytime you turn them into, you know, you turn them into just an acronym, no one can remember what it stands for. But at any rate, the first project is a subset of a group of model dwellings, which are over in Penton uh, on the edge of, of Pentonville, in a place called Bagnage Wells. So it's now part of um, Camden. It was in the St. Pancras parish. And so you get the group, I think it's Lord Ashley. And a number of other like minded, thoughtful, upper sorts and upper middle sorts who get together and say, okay, we've got to do something. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to create a model for other people to follow. Because if we do this properly, everyone will be inspired. They'll see that it's not too hard, they'll see that it can be a profit making venture. And everybody will decide to do this. And you love them for that because you know they're trying their best, but you also, in hindsight, know that market forces are are working against them. So what they do is they design mostly a series of homes, and it's basically two, two stories on each side of a small street. The facades of them look very much like terraced houses. And what they do is they create sort of a wing in the middle, which is just for how do they put it, older or widowed women who are virtuous and they're seamstresses and they're trying to make an own, their own living, but, they, but obviously they need, they need a place to live. And so the arrangement for these ladies is that there are two to a room, um, you know, And they, they do their best. I mean, they put, you know, they try to put heating in each room. So they try to have everybody have a fireplace or be adjacent to a fireplace so they can have a little coal fire and stay warm. They tend to put it up on what you all would call the first floor. So, you know, you're not walking right in, but there's a certain element of being protected within the building. They try to create a situation where it's going to be clean, where they're surrounded by other women, and then it's bookended, if you will, by the family housing, which I think is fascinating. You know? So here they are, they're sort of, you could argue that they're, they're within kind of family dwellings, both physically as well as mentally. They're being um, protected
2: by yes, the family unit.
0: absolutely, absolutely, and I find that fascinating. They also build, at the end, they build a small laundry And they build that partly because, of course, one of the big struggles of being working class, especially in London, is access to water and ability to stay clean, physically clean. And remember, you know, this is in the 1840s. So this is after the big cholera epidemic. And the idea is that light, air and access to things that make you clean are going to prevent disease, going to keep you healthy, and it's going to keep you morally healthy as well. So this is an interesting project. And so this goes on. It's perceived as successful, but it's on a super small scale. Uh, but what's interesting is the same company goes on and they build a dwelling after the second cholera epidemic called Thanksgiving Dwellings. It's over on Port Pool Lane. So it's over on the edge of, it's not, it's sort of just outside the city limits, um, so it's in, I think it might be in the edge of, see, I'm going to get my geography wrong. It's off of the Grayson Road. That's probably the best way to, to place it because the names of the parishes and so on keep changing. So what they do is the same organization, they, they do it a second time. So 1848, 1849, they build a set of family dwellings. But within that, they reserve a section and they make them single room dwellings for this same sort of audience, this same group of women. So the idea again is, You're widowed, or you're single, or somehow you're on your own. And so we're going to build a separate section of this, which is a series of single rooms. And the only people who are gonna be allowed to live there are single women who are working for a living. And it actually does seem to be successful because if you look at an 1861 census, now the census, as we know, is limited by many, many things. It's only every 10 years. It's whoever's home on that day to actually say, do you live here? What's your name? How old are you? Tell me what you do. But within that, what I found fascinating is that in 1861, so this is 12, 13 years after these rooms open, they are still inhabited by single women. In general, they are the single women for for whom they're planned. So they're servants. They say they're needle women. They're char women. These are women who are really living on just barely enough to, to get by. And so, you know, one of the questions we always ask about social housing is, are the people for whom it's designed actually living there? And in 1861, if we trust the result of, of this census, that's very true. And this is who is living there. So they range in age from quite elderly, you know, 60s to women in their, in their middle 20s. And generally those are their jobs. So one question, you know, has always been, so who ends up living there and what, what it's like? And in this case, it appears to be successful in housing this particular group of, of women. Now, what we don't have, unfortunately, are, that I've been able to find so far, and I'm still looking for it, is any sense of what the experience of living there on the part of these women was. You know, was it good, was it bad? Were they happy there? Did they feel safe? Was this a better choice for them? Were they restricted in any way? And so on and so forth. But we do know that they were actually living there. So, you know, score one, if you will, for the SILC, because they have, at least on a small scale, provided lodgings for a small group of these women. Now, of course, the issue is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these women. And my recollection is I think there were roughly 100 single rips. So this is, you know, a very, very, very tiny, tiny portion. But again, it's supposed to be it's you know it's, it's, uh, I don't wanna use the word performative because that implies that they're not actually doing anything, they're just showing us what they're doing. But there is an element of performance about it because again, they're trying to say to other people who might develop housing to so on, hey, look, you can do this and it works. That's sort of it for the early stuff in London. There are other homes, but they tend to be for fallen women and fallen girls. And to me, that's a different category because they, they have an overtly reformative, reclaim you, make you godly purpose. They are run much, much differently. There's not much of an element of choice or independence, I think. So that's a group that I think needs to be considered in a different, in a different podcast. Um, here, we're talking about a place where you can voluntarily apply for rooms. You yourself want to live there and you're, you're not being at least overtly treated as some sort of a criminal.
2: And, and I guess we should say that the, the dividing line between those two groups, that's not oh, yeah. a big jump.
0: No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Women, unfortunately, as we know, have often chosen to be or had to be sex workers because that typically pays one much more than any other labor that, that you would do. And yes, I'm pretty sure that there, that, and, and this, of course, I think is recognized as being, as being something that women during this era often had to do, but instead of understanding the dynamic, of course, it, you know, it just becomes something that you, you're castigated for and thrown out for and, you know, and treated very badly about what one would want to do is try to look at, and I haven't been able to locate any kind of a rent book so I could see and look at the fluctuation in the population in these rooms and see how long the individual women were able to stay there. Was there a lot of turnover because they couldn't afford it? Was there turnover because of the constraints in terms of who you were and what you could do in order to get those rooms and et cetera, et cetera. And that, of course, if I could ever, if I can locate any form of document (laughs) It might give me half a clue. Would really enrich our understanding of how how this type of work, this type of lodging actually actually worked. So, what happens though? Did you have a question, Billy? We're both leaning in, and I this, can see that. This, this, this
2: always gets to the point because we're sort of enthralled. You like, shall, shall we? Shall we jump in? or we'll just let let you go, and I'm thinking we'll just let you go No, no, no Okay.
1: We're,
0: we're enjoying
2: so, this. I suppose one thing really is we, yeah. we've. In sort of in, in the prep we've got this idea of the benevolent houses and the lady flats. I guess that's that's the two those are the two elements that we've been chatting about so far, really. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. Ladies flats, not Absolutely. Ladies flats that
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear. It's a Eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner, in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
0: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That sounds
2: bad. We're starting to see this divide. One of the things we've got in here is it's this class element as well. You were saying that you you have within these things, trosses of eligible women to go into these different places, really. But What about... people setting these things up. We're in this weird mid to late 19th century elements of buildings being built down to the finest detail of the fixtures, furnishings. something that would carry on with the the Lloyd Wrights and things like that in the early 20th century, where if you bought one of their houses, you got everything, but that was a custom high-end thing. What's happening with these properties and these people that are building these properties?
0: Right. So quickly, just to say, while these are the early experiments and they are for a particular, particularly needy audience, they stop being built. And I think as we've spoken about very quickly in our last podcast where we were focusing entirely on social housing, what happens is the emphasis moves to families, for a lot of reasons that we talked about. And so these are two examples, and as far as I know, there's one other example, and it's a lodging house for just women, which this same company takes the building, repurposes it, and tries to open it as a lodging house, and they end up closing it within two years and then reopening it as a lodging house for men. Now, the argument is that they can't charge enough because women don't get paid enough, to make it a profit making establishment, whereas they can charge the men more. And I think that's part of it, but I think there is a growing discomfort as we move from the 1840s into the 1850s with women living on their own. There is a rising sort of in the, there's the rise of the middle classes, the rise of the upper middle classes, and suddenly subsidizing, if you will, this kind of living for single women begins to make the philanthropists uncomfortable and they choose to focus on families. So this leaves women with pretty much nothing, basically. And so it isn't until the 1870s in England that we, we get another upsurge in housing for single women. And at this point, there are two things that start to happen. One is that women have started to move into some particular professions. If you were an educated, upper middle-class woman, you begin in the 1870s and into the early 1880s to be able to work as typists, for example. You begin to be able to work in offices. There is a small number of women who have what we now call white-collar jobs. At the same time as there is a huge market of young women who are working in factories, working as dressmakers and working in shops. So now you've got a growing population of working women. London has increased in population. These concerns have not gone away. If anything, they begin to be magnified in the wake of the great exhibition in 1851 and the knock on effect. And then of course, We begin to see much more stress on the working population during the American Civil War because there's no cotton for Manchester and the other textile trades to to make cloth and spin thread. And this has a big impact. And so by the time we get to the 1870s, you get a rising concern again about young women on their own working their own sort of well-being. And what happens is with a a Christian-driven evangelical kind of mindset says, we need to keep these young women safe. And by that, we mean we don't want them to turn into prostitutes. We don't want them to become debauched. And so you get you get this remarkable organization, which is basically called, they call themselves Homes for Working Girls in London. And that's exactly what they are and they're, they appear to be run by, they, they get some philanthropy, again, from some of the folks who have already been doing housing philanthropy. But the driving force behind this is a man named John Shrimpton, who is really hard to find anything out about. He's the secretary of the organization, so he's in charge of all the day-to-day, the nitty-gritty, and so on. He's got a bunch of of important figureheads to give the organization credibility and to help with fundraising. But as far as I understand, he's running the show. And so what they do over time is they try to lease houses because for several reasons. First of all, there's no capital, build something. But there's also always the idea that these need to be homes. That So in other words, you're not going to create a situation where you're going to put individual girls in individual rooms individual places, and they're going to live on their own, you're going to take them into this home, there's going to be a, quote, mother, and they actually use that term, which is fascinating. And you have to apply to get in, you have to be young, you have to be, I think that I think you can't be any older than 25, basically. So their target is 16. Because younger than that, gosh, you should be home. Many girls are not, but you know, so they, they take these houses they clean them up, they repurpose them, they redecorate them if they can. And they create a situation where it is, it's, it is like a home writ large. It, it, their idea is you will all be a bunch of sisters and there will be a mother and we will have our meals together, which they do. And we will have family prayers and we will lock the door at 11 o'clock because you should be home if you're a good girl and so on. And on Sundays, you know, you'll all be in the parlor and you'll be playing the piano and singing hymns and so on. And it's, so it's fascinating because they have decided this is how they're going to make sure that you stay a chaste, marriage-minded girl. But they also wanna offer it because they want you living in a good place and they recognize there's a need for it. So over time, they end up with, within 10 years, they're running nine different homes across London and the thing that always fascinated me is that entrance was restricted to girls who quote had not fallen close quote. So we're not doing any reclamation of young women who have had to become prostitutes. You, you've got to be chased basically and there were rules you know you had to go to family prayers twice a day. you had a curfew at 10 10:30 p.m where they literally would turn off the gas like right lights out everybody to bed. And then within that, they had specific rules. You you had to make your bed and tidy your room before you left for the day. Um, You couldn't cook in your room. you 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 couldn't run any businesses in the room. So in other words, you couldn't take in mending to supplement your income and so on and so forth. And there's a wonderful illustration of the interior of one of the homes in the 1870s, which shows all of these young women in very sort of dark colored, very subdued clothing. And they're in the parlor on a Sunday. And they're doing things like playing the piano and singing and doing their own mending and, you know, comporting themselves as young ladies. And what's fascinating about this is on the wall, there are various sort of embroidered things. You can just read that they say things like, never waste a Sunday, it's the Lord's Day or things like that. So it's very overtly sort of moral, but they are successful. They are typically full. And girls want to live there because they are safe and they're not super expensive. And and you are, in fact, getting meals. Now, there are also a lot of girls. And if you read the annual reports, you see that there are girls who come and go because there are girls who get into this situation. and They're like, I'm I'm not doing this. You know, what is this prayers twice a day? What is this, you know, lights out at 10 o'clock? So there is a fair bit of rebellion. I wish I could find things that the girls had, had written themselves. So again, you're reading the annual reports and so you have to kind of read between the lines as to what really happens in terms of the amount of rebellion and the amount of number of young ladies who leave. And because they're not, there are no surviving registers of the names of young women who were there. They're, they're only these annual reports and numbers. Again, you can't see what really happened. But it is sort of interesting. There's clearly a push and pull and a dynamic. Which some of them are successful, some of them are not.
3: It sounds a bit like boarding school, doesn't it? it or at least a- that's how I envisage a- boarding school to be. You know, you're you're not allowed out between the hours of X and Y, and right. you know you will make your bed. And if the the corners aren't turned down appropriately, then you will be caned and Absolutely. and all the rest of it. Do these catch on? Because you say that they they are popular, yeah. but. The concept of a a women's only dwelling doesn't seem to persist as far as my limited knowledge tells me. So if not, then why not?
1: Ready to pop the question?
0: There are are two results from this. One is that this group finally raises enough money to build a purpose-built home for the girls. And it's on a larger scale. They hire an architect to do it and they design it so that there are public rooms and then individual sort of cubicles and so on for the girls. And this occurs in about 1903 let me think, 1903, 1904, you can still see the building. It's over on the edge of St. Marylebone. And so to a certain extent, it continues because in addition to this one, you get other ones. So by the turn of the 20th century, so this is quite a bit later now, the turn of the 20th century, you have Brabazon House in Pimlico, constructed in 1901. Architect is Stephen Ailing. You then get Hopkinson House, 1905, which is still there, actually. I think it's been converted into a hostel, also by Stephen Ailing. And then you get something called Ada Lewis House out on the New Kent Road, which I think is now a student hostel. Interestingly, that's Joseph and Smith, who did quite a few of the social housing constructions. And typically, you either let a small room or you had a cubicle. So that allowed them to drop the rents and so on and so forth. And trying to find information on what it actually cost is really diabolical. Sometimes you can find flyers and sometimes you can't. But they tended to be full up and they were pretty successful. And there was some friction. There was a big fight, apparently, in the Ada Lewis home somewhere around 1913. Fortunately, they have minutes for that one. And there was a big fight between the young women living there. There was a group of young women who were, who were very offended and very grumpy at some of the restrictions on their comings and goings, because they felt at this point, they were, you know, this is the turn of the 20th century, and they felt they should have more freedom. They also felt that they should be able to take newspapers and state their views and so on. And the authorities were a little uncomfortable about this. And there was a group of other women who stayed there who were very unhappy about this. And so there's quite a bit of toing and froing and some interesting kind of missives between these two groups of young women about 1913, where I think the, the group that wanted more freedom was also interested in greater rights for women, and they wanted to use the public room to have a meeting. The group that wasn't interested felt this was disruptive and that they shouldn't be doing that. And so it's quite, so that's one of the few times we're able to see what it's like to be in this large group dwelling, and that there are young women who are kicking up a fuss and saying, no, 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 if I'm paying you for my lodging, I have some rights. And, you know, I should be allowed to have opinions of my own. So that is, that, that's interesting. So the answer is, They did continue. There were a number of them. And unfortunately, many of them, many more existed than I've been able to track down. There are little whispers in archives. But because, again, they were not perceived as significant, and unfortunately, as late as 2007, they were not recognized as being important. And Brabazon House actually was demolished in 2007 because the ruling was it's not, it doesn't meet the standard for preserving it. And it was allowed to be knocked down. And of course, now we're like, what part of this is a significant aspect of building in women's history did you not see? Um, So in answer to your question, they stayed popular, but because it cost money to build them because of all the land issues and because it was for young women who were ultimately supposed to be married and having children, And social concerns about women working, there should have been more and there weren't. Now, the other end of the spectrum is just as interesting and perhaps even more so, because as women begin to move into, as upper middle-class women begin to become educated, begin to agitate for greater rights and privileges within the family, the sort of the growing women's movement, becomes associated specifically with having my own place to live, where I get to choose how I live, where I'm not beholden to male family members, I'm not taking care of an elderly relative, I'm not a glorified housekeeper. And so the first instance, instances of those occur in the 1880s, and that's when you start to get ladies' residential chambers which is associated with the movement for women's rights and women's greater ability to to be out in the world and working. So you get people like Agnes Garrett, for example, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, one of the first female physicians and so on. And what's interesting about them is they band together and they decide to construct a dwelling themselves. So they hire an architect, and they work with that person. They put a committee together to work with that architect, to design a building the way they want it. And this is where it gets quite interesting in terms of how that building is created and how women live. So I'm gonna pause for a second and see if there are any questions because there was an enormous amount of information that I just threw at you guys.
2: I think that's interesting. I think that sort of, it's almost like a sliding scale about whether you get rooms or you get the box. Down, down at the corner. And I think that, and, and whether or not we know of any further frictions that come out of that, I think that would be an interesting interesting question. Because if you're living in tight confines and you have someone just down the hall in much nicer surroundings, how does that affect the dynamics within the building as far as you've been able to, to tell?
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because what happens in general, by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, you what you're getting are individual cubicles. And what's even more sort of interesting about cubicles is the, the, the tremendous lack of privacy that you have. You know, these are the kind of cubicles that you have, for example, in a routin' house, which is designed for working men, who cannot find a place to live and they don't wanna live in essentially a DOS house. So on the social scale, the men living at the Routen house are on a much lower social level than these young women actually are in terms of where they come from, in terms of where they are in their life. But because they get paid so much less, you know, you can't run this as a profit-making venture if you're giving each girl their own individual room. So there are some rooms available, but by the time you get to the Ada Lewis house, you're really talking about cubicles. And by that, I mean a tiny space. You've got a bed. You might have a very small place to put a box of your things and hopefully a window so you can lighten ventilation. But they're not sealed. It's not like these are walled. You can close the door and be on your own because I found one photograph. And essentially what you've got are, they're like partitions. And so the above bit, you've got a wall up to about, I'm going to use the old imperial measurements here, eight feet, nine feet. So over the heads of anybody who's residing. But then it's open to the ceiling. And on the bottom, you often have mesh. So there's a certain So this allows for a certain element of surveillance, if you will. You can kind of see who's in the cubicle and who's not. But it also, it's going to be noisy. You're going to have, I mean, the argument is for light and ventilation. But is that really what's going on? We're
2: getting back to that element of control. We want to make sure you're being chased, you're being being good.
0: Yes, exactly. The amount of privacy you get as a... Single woman living in any variety of these places, depending upon your social class and the amount of money you can pay is directly related to what you can pay. If you are a working class girl, you are not paying a lot. And for that reason, the argument is in order to make this profit making, we're going to make cubicles because then we can have more of you, but we can still keep you. We can still keep the light and air that you need in order to stay healthy. But of course, the flip side of that is it means that we can police you, we can surveil you. Because you are of a lower social class, our concern is that if we put you all together, you're going to get up to mischief. Or God forbid, you should sneak a man back into your cubicle. And so the amount of surveillance, and if you look at the the pathways through these, you know, the Ada Lewis house or the Brabazon house, and again, there are different levels. Some of them have rooms Some of them have rooms and then cubicles, and some of them have just cubicles, and it is related to what you charge, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing I'm I'm hoping to do with my own work is to look at the numbers of cubicles related to the numbers of rooms, look at who's staying there, look at what they're paying, and try to see if there are some trends. In addition to that, look at how the interiors, because these are specifically designed purpose built structures. So, from looking at how you move through these buildings, right? How many doorways do you go through? How far into the building? How far up on the floors you might be? You know, for example, are cubicles on the top floors? And they seem to be top floors being attics, servants, there's that element. But it's also you have to go much further into the building. Before you get to your own private space, and therefore you you are to a certain extent more controlled. There are more opportunities to keep an eye on you, and it, and the
2: navigation through a building puts you in a place, doesn't it? Absolutely. So if if, yes if you're yes. if you're in the door and then there's your yeah. room, right? That's better than having to go up a whole bunch of flights of stairs, like exactly. on a you know, fifth floor walk up and lower. Exactly. So that that sort of thing. It's yep. you have that how they're great. designed to put people into their.
0: Cubicles. Absolutely. They, they, yeah, and they work in a sense as, as a series of gates and thresholds. Uh, and the other thing that I believe is true is that I don't think you have floors where you have cubicles and rooms, unless the room is for someone who is nominally supervising. So you're going. So you either have rooms, and again, this needs more investigation. But so far, what I've seen is the larger rooms are the situations where you might have a room and a half or. A shared room tend to be on lower floors, the more desirable floors, in terms of the way that you would organize, you know, you would organize a home, for example. So you get that layover. But just to return to our upper middle ladies who are defining the ability to live as the way they want to live as part of their struggle to be taken seriously as full citizens and professional women, is that you get two groups of dwellings for ladies. It can be confusing because they call them flats for ladies and there's ladies residential dwellings, but then there's another company that's very similar. So I'm going to refer to them either as flats for ladies, which is the company that's run by Agnes Garrett and Elizabeth Garrett. And then basically something over, I'm going to call it the, the Sloan Street residence to keep it separate. Otherwise we're going to get very confused because they are slightly different. They occur at the same time. There are two different, groups of, two different groups of women who are involved. The Garrett's are very much motivated by, this is for us, we are independent women, we should be able to choose where we live. They're the ones who get together, they hire an architect, they find land that they can lease and they build purpose-built flats. These are the women who in these flats, it's really interesting and you can still see them. One is on Cheney Street And the other is on York Street. And they both are still there. You can find them. They're actually quite elegant. So York Street and your Baker Street. And the way they're designed is is flat accommodation. You come in and you can take anywhere from two to three rooms. So you might have a sitting room and a bedroom. Or you might have uh, a sitting room, an additional room. Or you might have a sitting room and two bedrooms. If you look at the description in the minute books, what you see is there is a great attention to detail. So not only are you thinking about the plan, do we have enough rooms? Does everyone have at least one window? Are they comfortable? How's the ceiling height? Where are the doors? So there's an element of privacy. Then you get into sort of the fittings and furnishings. So there's an argument. We're going to basic furnish them. So what kind of furniture is going to come? How elegant is it going to be? What sort of chairs should we provide for comfort? How many chairs? So you see all of this in the minutes in terms of designing the buildings. Are we having Axminster carpeting or are we going to do something else Are we distempering the walls and if so, what colors, or are we papering the walls? And all of this is in the minutes as they're developing. So there's a huge amount of attention to detail in terms of comfort at the same time as you're struggling with how much do we really have to spend on furnishing in relation to our ability to get enough tenants who can pay for these. And so it's really interesting. There aren't any images of the interiors of the flats, which is quite frustrating because of course you'd like to be able to see those. Um, but there are some occasional drawings of the hallways and they are quite elegant. There's one drawing that's showing us in a stairway, you know, the this, this sort of steps up from the ground floor uh, that will then take you up to the first section where there are flats and there is an elegant, elegant plant, for example, and there are some soft furnishings and so on. And so what you see is there's an attempt to make this look similar to what these women would have experienced at home. And if you look at the if you look at the census data, it's pretty clear that this is who then resides there. So in 1891, for example, at Cheney Street, you have self-identified. First of all, every single woman in that building identifies herself as the head of her own household, which I love. So right away, this is what you're getting is, this is my flat, I run my own household. Typically in 1891, most of the women are taking three rooms. And they have professions like their physicians. There are two physicians in the building, which I think is fascinating because this is 1891. There are artists, quite a few artists. There are a number of women who are, quote, living on their own needs. So they have some family money and they are not currently working. You have at least one lecturer in the history of philosophy at a university and so on and so forth. So these are women who are educated. These are women who are very much independent. They have the ability to to take three rooms. They have the ability to, to live on their own. And the other thing that's interesting is that they are from all over England. So they are not just London based, they are from, there's one woman from, uh, and it's a small group at this point because they've just opened in about 1889. She's from Ireland, there's another woman, there are women from the colonies who've now come to London to make their way. One woman was born in Java, for example, and she's come. It's clearly a pretty high end. In terms of age, they're anywhere from roughly 25 to 60. So it's a good admixture of different women who are self-identifying as professional women. And to them, being able to live on their own in comfortable rooms that are furnished to a particular standard is a really important part of their identity as a professional woman. And you see that in, in the building and its furnishings and fittings. And you see it on the exterior too. It's a fairly elegant red brick with white stone trim Queen Anne style building.
2: I have just found it on Google Maps.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was bombed, unfortunately, in World War II. So they did have to reconstruct part of it. It's not quite as attractive as it was originally, but it's still there, which, you know, now I think it's divided up into flats, not for women only. There was a restaurant so you could take your meals because obviously if you're a professional woman, you're not cooking in your room and there weren't facilities for that. And there was maid service because, again, when did you have time to clean if you're a professional woman? So while you were paying for all these things, it's fascinating to me that this is very much an attempt and it is, and many, many of these women were involved in or supported women's suffrage. So there is a real, there are strong connections between their identity as professional independent women and their desire to be, to have access to more of life and to not be constrained by particular social worlds. So that's London. And
2: that sounds fascinating. What
0: a group of women. There's
2: a TV series there.
0: They must have been a redutable group of, of women and a very interesting group. Is this a
2: London centric thing or is this being repeated in say the other major cities across? It
0: tends to be a London thing for the same reasons that we have lots of social housing is the way that land is held in London is so restrictive that it keeps rents high. It keeps it always challenging to find places to live. And again, as a woman, it's much harder. You're getting paid less. And there are places that just, you, you can't live on your own. They're like, where's your husband? Where's your, you know, What do you mean where's your family you know what do you mean you want to let this room on your own and that's one of the reasons why this building is designed is because it's almost impossible for women to let a flat in a place where a man could let a flat and be accepted there pay for it and also retain some modicum of respectability because remember it's still a real issue for you if you are perceived, you can, you can push the social boundaries, but there are some that you really can't cross over if you want to be taken seriously. And you cannot have a flat in a building where everyone else there is male. It's, that's just a non That's never going to happen. In the States, for example, if you were a single woman and you wanted to check into a hotel during this period, they would turn you away because their assumption was that you had to be, you must be some sort of high-end prostitute if you were trying to stay in a hotel on your own. But in answer to your question, there are some examples in other cities, and I'm still trying to track them down because it is really hard. This, a lot of this has been erased from the record. There tended to be things for along the earlier things that we talked about that had a social message or were motivated by philanthropy, taking care of working young women. So Manchester had a hostel at one point, for example. There were some in other, they tended to be in the larger manufacturing areas because, and they tended to be in places where you had a concentration of female factory workers. Because again, as an employer, it's worth it to you to have your your factory workers healthy. Um, So there is an example in Manchester. There was one in Sheffield, I think at one point, there was one in Manchester I have not spent a lot of time looking at arrangements in Scotland because um, despite being part of the British empire, you know, the way that land use was, was different in Scotland. And so that's almost would be a different, uh, a different project, but you tended to find them in London because that was where the need appeared to be greatest.
2: So you've got that sort of unholy triumph of, of yeah. commerce class and morality. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Going
2: going a bit mad.
0: Absolutely. There is one other example, which I just uh, had been thinking about it for a while, but I stumbled across some additional information. One of the things that we've been talking about is how distinct the different classes of dwellings were, how you had a high level of supervision, not a lot of freedom and very kind of bare bones accommodation in a lot of these places for working women. And, you know, again, there were many women who lived in these places who who you might argue were from a slightly higher class, but because they didn't make very much, they ended up in these places. Slum Street, which I referred to a few minutes ago, which is another set of dwellings developed by a group of women. But in this case, there were men involved and it had more of a, it's sort of in between, if you will. The, the kind of high-end, we are independent flats, and the sort of lower-end, we're providing accommodation for these girls because they need to remain innocent and they can't afford anything. So on Slum Street, you get some folks involved who have some money, and what you do is, you, apparently, it really was a hybrid dwelling. So, and you can still see the exterior. The exterior is quite fabulous and lavish. And now it's been turned into sort of, I think at one point, it was like a fancy residential club, kind of a la men's residential clubs. But during this period, basically what happens is you construct a new set of dwellings. On the exterior, it, it resembles the ones over on Cheney Street. But inside, apparently, in addition to having sets of rooms, you actually did also have some cubicles. And this so far is interesting because ostensibly it's for a slightly higher class of women. And yet within the building, there may be different social classes. In order to figure that one out, and and there's, oh gosh, there's so little on this that I've been able to find on this structure that it's so frustrating. I haven't found any organizational minutes, for example, so I don't have an understanding of how the project was conceived. You know, How was it designed? Was this a building essentially built by men for women? Or was there a strong element of women in leadership roles who were trying to Create a particular dwelling that, that they felt would fulfill female needs. So this one needs more expo- exploration, but again, if you look at a census from 1891, so this is the same the same year that we were looking at the residents of the residential chambers, independent women over on Cheney Street. There is definitely a difference in who's living there. There are more in general. There are they come up described as single rooms now is that a room? Is that a cubicle? Again, the gradations within need some exploration. But point is that there there are mostly individual spaces for each woman, one woman, one space. So here you have teachers, you have schoolmistress, you have typists. There are some artists, you have one or two women who say they're living on their own means. You have a photographer and a bookbinder. But in general, they are not as highly paid. They are not the upper white collar independent. I'm an artist. I'm a physician. I'm a professional class. I'm going to make some decent money. As I said, lots and lots of teachers and school who we know in the 1890s was certainly a profession for women, but it wasn't one that paid very well. The occasional, as one woman says, she's a day governess, for example. So she's a governess, but she's not actually living in the home with the family. She's coming, one assumes, to care for children, but not to actually reside overnight. Similar age range, you know, 20s to there are one or two much older women. But again, I think there is a different social class. So this one needs more explanation. I wish I could tell you more about the interior. I wish I could tell you more about what it looked like so that we could see how the building in this case, which seems to fit in between, might actually reflect a slightly different philosophy. But that's to be determined and to be be explored.
2: It's interesting the locations of these buildings because they're in semi-classy parts of London. You know, Sloane Street's just off Knightsbridge, which has always been fancy up by baker street that even in the 19th century that still had cachet hence a certain fictional detective living in that sort of area i find that fascinating that there are these social experiments happening in areas where the people that would be funding these sorts of things probably would have would have houses themselves i just find that fascinating that they're not tucked away they're in reasonably prominent positions
0: I think there, there, are two, there are two things that may be going on here. One, again, is very important is whose land are we able to use? And I think in general, you have to convince someone, you have to convince um, basically an aristocrat, a male aristocrat, to support your project by allowing you mm. to lease the land. So I think that that's one element that, that needs exploration that we, one, one should probably keep in mind. Again, because London is divided up in all these giant estates, you've got to get permission. I think Cheney Street is within the Duke of Bedford's lands. I think it is. I know that a lot of that area is, but I would want to triple check and make sure that at the time that they wanted to build the building, it was still something that was part of his estate. And of course, there were many, many restrictions Mm -hmm. on all of these estates in terms of what you could do, how you could build, what you could develop. What's interesting about the Ada Lewis house is it is in a very different area. It is a slightly, remember, this is for working girls who aren't making much money. At the time, it was less salubrious. There were factories and so on. And evidently, there was a big fuss kicked up about using the land to put this structure there. That the, apparently what had happened was there was actually a court case And Lord Kinnaird, who crops up in a bunch of these projects, by the way, for young working women, as does his wife. And that's a story for another day. They're they're very interesting people. They're very active in this. And that's a whole different podcast. Lord Kinnaird, who I guess is spearheading this one, ends up going to law. And it actually goes to the Court of Appeals to see whether or not the rules of leasing the land. Allow it to build this structure. And eventually it gets it gets thrown out and they have to change. I think they had to find a different lot to build it. Wow. That the early lot was actually restricted. And the argument in the court of appeals was that it could be construed as a place where business was conducted. And Lord Canary is saying, No, the young women are living here and they're strictly not allowed to do work in the building. They're merely living there. They go off to their work and they come back. But apparently the folks in the area didn't want this. They didn't want this structure there. And so there was pressure and ultimately it's ruled that no, the condition of the lease does not permit you to conduct business. This is a residential area only. And so they had to move the site. Mm. So there are, yeah, the way land is used and the way land is held and the arguments thereof are all still require exploring. But I think what we can say about this, this whole sort of project is that we learn a lot by looking at the buildings about what the expectations were for the women who lived there. Who were they supposed to be? How were they supposed to behave? There are various elements of management of the people who live there, getting permission to live there in the first place, being allowed to stay depending upon your behavior. There are elements that are related to very much to what do we think women, who do we think women are supposed to be in terms of the furnishings, the organization of the spaces to reflect particularly different types of domestic spaces. In the case of the girls who are working, in factories and so on, those spaces are very much organized in a way that might reflect a middle-class home. So we're trying to make sure these young women stay chaste and marriageable. In the case of the flats designed by the the Garretts and their um, circle are very much designed to provide the kind of upper middle-class comforts that men would have in flats of their own in terms of the furnishings, in terms of the level of independence, the ability to come and go, having maids there to clean your room because you were, after all, a professional woman, and having a restaurant there where you could take your meals because you certainly weren't going to have time to cook for yourself and everything in between. There's a whole lot left to explore on this, and and I will out myself and say that there are several books in my head right now. Actually, each of these podcasts has kind of outed me in terms of what I'm interested in. But lately, I am tending to think that the one on housing for single women is, is probably the one that needs writing down, partly before we lose any more of these structures. We need to recognize how important they are, but also because it's still incredibly relevant. We're, we're still fighting this battle. You know, and I and again I speak from a position of privilege from someone who's had access to education and so on. But how how shall she live is still very much a very important question. And I'm hoping to take what I know so far and put it into a book. But as you've heard, there are still some things that need more exploration before I do that. Well, come on then. I want to read it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I, I, th- I think you're right. I think that, that the purpose of the space and the trajectory that it's pushing its inhabitants. Like you're saying, the Absolutely. lower class women who are working to tie them over until they get married. Absolutely. Whereas the mi- the middle class women who are self-functioning, and I'm doing air quotes here, dear listening, yeah, that they can have the comforts and the time and the support not to have to worry so much until they're ready to do that. Just those two elements that we ch-
0: chatted about, I think mean, that's
2: fascinating.
0: Absolutely. And it's also clear with the ladies' residential chambers that many of these women have made that decision because they're still in a situation where if they marry, they then become subservient. And I think it's fascinating to see that I think the majority, it would be interesting to follow them on in later censuses and in later, you know, sorts of ways where we, one could find out more information about them, Um, To see what they end up doing. Do they stay single? What do they do in their careers? There is one woman there who is a physician, and she goes on to become the first female inspector of women's prisons. And she's a huge social reformer. So there are some great stories about some of these individuals. So I'm hoping to as I, as I think about the book, not just be endlessly, uh, endlessly talking about the buildings themselves, but populate them with different women who lived there and see if I can uncover some individual stories so that we've got, we as historians, and hopefully we as anybody who might actually want to learn more, or read more, we've got a better understanding of what was it like? What was it like? Who were these women? So many of them have been lost to history. I'd like to find them and how they lived, where they lived, is, is a big part of that story.
2: Well, we're not going to have you back till you've written it.
0: Alex says, and, and, and you may or may not have to edit this out, Alex says, no gin until I've written a couple of chapters, which I think is a pretty big threat on her part. So we're
2: we're, we're leaving that in so that it's an active threat now.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's totally an active threat. And if she were sitting in on this one, I'm pretty sure she'd be saying, absolutely not. No gin for you. No cool fizzy gin drinks uh, for you (laughs) until I see some chapters. So again, I'm outing myself here, I'm, I'm, I'm going public, I am working on this and there will be words on pages. And then of course, it will all depend upon anyone who wants to publish it, there's always that. I've got to find someone. As I said, I think it continues to be an important topic. It's certainly relevant now still. I'm sure out there in the world right now, hopefully some of you are listening to this podcast, are different women who are trying to make it on their own and they're saying, oh my God, not again. You know, here we go. This is exactly what we face.
2: So. There will be those that argue that the situation's different, but. Absolutely. It, but it, the parallels and the battles are there, he says, as a middle-class white guy who is <laughs> <laughs> not best place to say any of that. Nina, um, this has been absolutely fantastic. We'll, we'll wrap it up here because once you've done those chapters, we can have you back, have some gin and talk about this some more. Ooh, sounds good to me. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for having me again. I so enjoy these. And then History Hack, I can't say enough about the team and about the opportunity to do it. It's a great podcast, and I hope those of you out there who are listening, keep downloading, keep paying attention. It's a lot of fun, and I hope you all enjoy listening as much as I've enjoyed doing it.
2: That's not getting you out of those chapters.
0: <laughs> no, sadly not.
2: <laughs> when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.